On this episode today, we are excited to have Jennifer Kirsch, who is a fitness and nutrition coach for over 27 years, and she specializes in women over 40. She helps women make meaningful changes to their bodies, even in midlife. She's a creator of Straight Up Strength series and Nourish You. You can find her on Instagram at Jennifer Kirsch Fitness. Jen, welcome to The Well Drop. Thank you for joining us today. We are Thank you. so interested in the midlife. Both Dina and I are in our 40s, and so are many of our friends and listeners of the show. So tell us a little bit about how you ended up focusing on women in their 40s, given your extensive background in the fitness and nutrition industry. I've been in the industry since my 20s. And when I started, I worked with whoever would have me, you know, <laughs> as you do when you're starting a career like that. As my career evolved, I found myself around the year that I turned 40, one day looking at my client roster, just out of curiosity, I took the average ages of all of my clients at that point, and I, 56 was the, I remember, I remember the day, and I actually asked my colleagues, I share a studio space with two other women who are about the same age as me, and I said, oh, isn't that funny how like everybody seems to be empty, they were like just empty nesters, starting to take time for themselves, and so I have had a front row seat to that population, if you will, for a really long time. And not even, I didn't, I didn't necessarily set out for it. It just sort of materialized. And I had found that at that time, so that was back in 2010, where I really kind of found myself in that niche, you know, so for the most part, most of my clients were, yeah, and they're just coming into their fifties, just starting to get to that point where they're like, okay, the kids have left home. I really need to spend a little bit more time, you know, taking care of myself and my health and finally sort of almost giving themselves permission to, to begin doing that in a more meaningful way. I uh, I have to say I'm loving this stage of my life, but of course it comes with a lot of new challenges. What are some of the challenges that you see? What are your what are your clients facing? So, generally when women are coming to me, at least in the studio space when I was more um, brick and mortar, if you will, this is pre-pandemic days, but I, you know, uh, weight loss, strength building were, were the two primary. And what kind of, you know, each each decade we need different things. The challenges that you're seeing is that something that you see new in the 40s specifically, or how does that change 40s, 50s, 60s? And as you've watched, as you said, as you've watched the progression in your clients? I think the best way that I can describe it, one of, one of the common things that I hear women say is that, you know, they arrive in their 40s and I hear this a lot, what used to work isn't working anymore. And so they're, they're frustrated because their typical bag of tools, if you will, aren't, aren't working. And I, I often say, well, the tools that you were using before might not have been the best tools for you even then. It was just that, that it, it, it gave the illusion that it was effective. I do think, you know, with my generation, I'm almost 53. I, you know, I don't know the, if you're 10 years younger than me, your the messages that you're getting culturally around fitness, nutrition, exercise, maintaining your weight might, it does vary from decade to decade, I think somewhat, but I do, I think we could all agree there's some some crazy information out there and like how much of it is actually good information and not. So, you know, the going coming back to me and saying, you know, I'm not really sure where to start. I work with a lot of women who have never done any strength training before. So really kind of wrapping their heads around, you know, just because your strength training does not turn you into a bodybuilder. Especially really, after 40. Uh, especially <laughs> after. Yeah. You're yeah. definitely at, at a disadvantage um, as far as, as far as your ability to put on muscle, but it's not, it's not impossible. It just requires different set of strategies that maybe, maybe if the goal before was your weight, now it really needs to be on preserving your muscle mass. And, and I think when women are just like, as a continuation on that, when we're younger, we 
I use the air quotes, can get away with a lot more. But I also think like if you have young children still, you're probably moving a lot more too. Whereas when you get a little bit older and you're not doing that manual labor of young children anymore, your your activity level just by default starts to slow down. So I do think it's like a perfect storm. You're starting to lose muscle, you're moving less. And research has shows that your metabolism doesn't actually change. But what can change your metabolism is muscle loss and loss of activity. <laughs> so all of those things, and, and higher stress and, and countless other things, but it's not just inherently your age that's doing that. I think it's such a great point that you bring up that each decade, I say that a different workout may work for you in your 20s, another one in your 30s, and then now for us, we're in our 40s and you're in your 50s, but we're not really like forewarned or kind of it's not brought to our attention of what is the best one for each decade. So I think yeah. especially I'm 43, you know, forties is new to me. And exactly that happened to me last year where what I used to do, I've done kind of the same thing for 15 years, just wasn't working. And I could just tell that I was starting to lose muscle and I didn't understand why I would only strength train maybe once a week at most. I didn't really, it's not an exercise I thoroughly enjoy, but of course, because I read so much and I know everything that they're saying, the data shows that we have to strength train. And my question is, because we lose, and many people may not realize this, that we lose three to 8% per decade of muscle mass after the age of 30, which is a lot. And that- Kind of wild, right? When you think about it that way and what that does to your metabolism, right. over, especially compounded over time. So if you think like if that process started- in your 30s and then here you are you had 10 years of that sort of <laughs> right that degradation that all of a sudden at some point right whether it's your 40s or your 50s or if you're really lucky your 60s like it's going to catch up to you right and you're going to start to say oh wow like why is my body softer what's yeah, going on yeah. where there should be this connection that people should make between the muscle mass loss and your you know i guess it's not your metabolism but how or is it your metabolism? Is your yeah, hormones and metabolism? It, it's all of those things together. I think the easiest way that would, in the context of what we're saying, so the less muscle you have, the less metabolically active your body is. So, you know, the more of your frame, your body, we refer to it as body composition. So it's that, that percentage between, you know, what percentage of you is like water, your essential organs and all of your muscles and tendons and all that is your lean, you know, your lean body mass versus your body fat, right? So your composition starts to change. So let's say hypothetically, you know, you always weighed, let's say your, your happy weight was 125 pounds at age 25. And here you are at 40 and you're like, I'm 130, but I don't feel like I only gained five pounds. Like everything is changed and shifted. So to keep muscle on your body, what it really takes is two things. It's adequate nutrition and stimulus, and that stimulus coming in the form of strength training. Mm -hmm. So when you begin that, that process of loss, you, your metabolism will, will begin to slow down as a result of the muscle loss, not just your age. I, I'm so curious is how much strength training is required. Right. Um, you mentioned the two, the food and the strength training. Yeah. What does it mean in terms of a weekly schedule? You know, anecdotally, I would say I, and this is anecdotally. So like there's a difference between like the, ev the evidence-based kind of things and the thing of me working in the trenches with women. But I have to say that when I have seen women that have come to me in the studio and they devote two, two full workouts per week, full workouts, full body workouts, they will get results from that. 
That's great. So that's, that's I, achievable. I, my general counsel, like minimum twice a week, every major muscle group. So I'm talking like the larger muscle groups. So getting out of that mindset that a lot of women have of like, and I'm sure everybody can relate on this some, some level. I want to tone up my legs. I want to tone up my arms. It's important not to sort of cherry pick what you don't like aesthetically and really focus on the big dowel movers, which are the muscles of your 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 legs, your core, your back, your chest. Those are the like the larger muscle groups. And as a result of that, like everything else is just gravy on top of that. But that said, there's a lot of different ways to put together some strength training. Some women get really passionate about it and they're doing four days a week and they're splitting it up. So they're saying, okay, I'm going to do an upper body this day, lower body the next. So there's no right or wrong way, but I'd say the, the minimum is two sessions a week. And again, the time is going to be dependent on the type of training that you're doing, but two sessions a week, full body. And if you're new, I just want to also be, this is one of the things that I'm going to digress from it that is a little bit of a, um, a sticking point for me as a fitness professional, because there's a lot of information out there for perimenopausal women about strength training. And there's this picture painted that I think makes is a little scary for women because they, they hear, oh, I have to live heavy. I've never lifted before. I don't know what to do. And so I think it stops them from even starting. So to anybody who's listening, if you've never done this before, it's totally okay to start with bodyweight exercises. If you if your body is not used to doing strength bodyweight strength training, that is strength training. That's an awesome place to start. But at some point, you will have to go beyond that to keep seeing results because the very essence of muscle growth is stimulus. It's it's a it's a it's a dynamic of stress and rest, just repeated right. over and over. So at some point those workouts that are body weight, like I get questions around yoga a lot. I'm like, yeah, initially, absolutely. But at some point you will stop progressing and you will stop being able to put on muscle. Right. I guess you'll start to sort of plateau because I actually had this conversation with one of my best friends yesterday who does not work out. And she actually, I was walking to the gym. She was about to go work out at home and she goes, oh, my TV's not working. I'm actually going to work out. I'm like, what are you going to do? And she said she was going to do one of those at-home videos. I don't want to say the name of the person, but it's sort of a kind of a Pilates where you're like lifting your leg a million times until you get the burn with like the ankle weights. And I said to her, I go, you really never work out. Like if you're going to do anything, actually you should strength train. I was like, do you have weights at home? And she's like, I do. I go, okay. And maybe, I don't know if this was good or bad advice, but I said, I know you do nothing. So if you're going to do something and make it the most worth your while, lift some weights. You know, but I like the body weight as a start. I think that is great. But I guess how quickly do you then, you know, because I think people get stuck in the body weight mode and then they just feel that the plateau is not working and they don't think about, oh, let me start. You have to keep like crawling up the ladder to make those changes. You know, I always, I work with so many women. I don't even know how many over the years, you know, hundreds and hundreds of women on this. And I do have women come to me that are still kind of it's very hard to unpack that old narrative about like, oh, I don't want to go too heavy or whatever. So my general way as a trainer of how I make people more comfortable like that, I'm like, let's start with the body weight stuff. Like, I want you to be able to trust that what I am, I am asking you to do is not going to make you look a bodybuilder. (laughs) It's not. So, but, but it takes, you know, so I also think too, when people start out, they have to develop a familiarity and a comfort with movement in general, Mm -hmm. especially if these movements are new, like some people don't inherently come into exercise knowing and understanding how to move their bodies well, Mm -hmm. right? That's it. That's a skill. When you had asked me before too about strength training, I think 
or somebody starting, I have noticed that women that are were athletic, like in high school or not even necessarily athlete per se, but athletic, they, they tend to respond better to training because there is some muscle memory and comfort with movement in general. Mm -hmm. And I find that those who have not had a bunch of experience don't respond. It's not that they don't respond. They just don't respond as quickly because quite frankly, it's just a new skill. So they don't even have that base level of knowledge and comfort. And so it's just going to take them a little bit longer to get to, you know, to that level. But certainly back, I agree with you. I think, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to pick one thing, strength training is where you're going to find the biggest bang for your buck more quickly. Mm -hmm. And where does cardio Um, fall in the mix of this? So, okay, we strength train at minimum two days a week. Where does cardio fit in, especially in your 40s? when you're sort of in a perimenopause state going into menopause, where, what's the sweet spot with cardio? Cause I think that's always. Confusing. I would say, I would say it depends and it has more to do with the amount of rest somebody is getting. So I want to just backtrack for a minute. So if you think about the stage of life that women are in at this stage of life, it is a even though it's low grade stress, it's still stress, right? Uh, do you so call then, it low grade? It doesn't feel low grade. Oh yeah, I agree. I think I think women, like especially like very type A, you know, type A women who are like trying to do all the things. I see this dynamic play out a lot there. They're like, no, I got it. I mean, I was one, so like I would say, it takes one to know one. Like that was that was me. You know, I can get by on five hours of sleep. I can say yes to everything, and then at a certain point, you're like, okay, it's exhausting. So you're like, what is that? to do with cardio so if you spend any amount of time like on instagram or online you know the conversation about midlife women is all about cortisol how bad that is blah blah blah. like well really what we're talking about is over stressing your body that's the problem Mm -hmm. so cardio gets lumped in with that and here is my theory about why we have that sort of disconnect so traditionally i think and you can correct me if you if you if you disagree, but I think women fall into a cardio first mindset when it comes to managing what their bodies look like. Hundred percent. They're like, I want to lose pounds, I am going to run. I want to trim down, I am going to run. So it's this direct line between calories expended and weight loss. Yep. The problem becomes when we rely on this too much because then it's yes, you are burning calories, but your metabolism. You're lo- you could potentially be losing muscle. Your metabolism begins to adjust for that because of the muscle loss. It's also perceiving a stressor, which can prompt your body to actually hold on to fat as a protective mechanism. So in that way, it's, necess- it's not necessarily an effective mechanism for the end result. Now, mm-hmm. that's not to say some people don't get a result right away, absolutely, especially if they've gone from like doing nothing to doing something. But at a certain point, it does peter out. So then the question becomes bringing it back what is the sweet spot for cardio? I would say it really just depends on how much you're giving your body time to rest and recover and how hard you're pushing it and how often, and that's going to be unique to the individual. I think I have this conversation on repeat. I had it twice yesterday with clients that I'm working with and wanting to know what that perfect amount is. And I'm like, the fact is I can't exactly tell you that because we don't know what your day-to-day life is looking like understanding where your own unique stress tolerance is as far as your physical body and how well you're allowing yourself to recover. So hypothetically, I think two days a week of strength training and three days a week of cardio. I think that would be a nice balance. I don't think women, especially, and listen, I was one of these women for, I was a marathoner. I taught fitness professionally for 
27 years, like always feeling that need to always have the cardio piece. And that did come back and bite me in the, in the butt, you know, in my early forties, like, Oh, that's not working anymore. Body not recovering as fast, but I kept, you know, of course I kept doing it because I had been so conditioned to think that that was what I needed. And it really wasn't until I sort of flipped the script on that and, and developed a different type of schedule. And then you, and then, you know, again, it's not about seeking out these longer workouts that are ultimately just stressing your body out. So that's, that's exactly what my question was going to be. Yeah. I was somebody, especially when my children were younger, that I felt like, okay, if I don't have an hour to devote to my fitness routine, I'm not going to do 100%. anything. So yeah. don't do anything. And as they aged and as I got a little smarter about it, I was like, okay, if I have 20 minutes or even 10, I'm going to move my body in some way, shape or form. And I found that that really helped me to feel better throughout the day. Um, if that is the case, if let's say you don't have even an hour to devote, mm -hmm. what I mean, you just gave us a wonderful schedule for how to break down cardio versus weights. Mm -hmm. If you had the limited time in the day, what would be the priority or what would you do with it? Or what would you recommend your clients do with it? You know, it's funny. You would think that I would say, do this exact exercise. I, yeah. I To me, it's more about the psychology of how you're viewing it. It's exactly what you said. Like, it's that conversation you want to have with yourself. Like, okay, if today I realistically only have 10 minutes, I don't want that 10 minutes to be like, let me stress myself out and do a quick little hit workout. Cause again, it goes back to that stress piece. So I think, you know, number one, maybe, maybe it's okay. Why do I not have more than 10 minutes to myself? Is that a time scheduling mm -hmm. thing? Is it a boundaries thing? But I think, you know, that's a deeper conversation. Yes. It is. It totally <laughs> Absolutely. Is. It's always like when you ask somebody in my profession, it's always like, well, it depends, you know? And the reason is, is that there's, I, 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 I see things in a more, you know, holistic context, but to your, to your point, I think it goes back to do what you can with the time that you've got. So whatever that looks like for you and really reflecting on in your week and like, listen, if you only have 10 minutes to lift weights, you absolutely can do a strength workout in 10 minutes. Think about it like, I don't know if anybody's familiar with doing like a timed interval set, but you could do, you know, a minute of squats, a minute of planks and a minute of pushups. Repeat it three times, done. Right. And let it be good enough because at least at the very least, when you're not letting that idea of it needing to be longer to have value, you still hold on to the habit. And there's something about that that's a cue to your brain that says, "Okay, this is this is good. I'm still I'm not out of the, I'm not I'm not off track. Right. I might not be doing the workouts as I would like to, but at least I'm not completely." You're still playing the game with your own body by signaling that there's like a you know a push release, like that your muscle memory, I think is really important that people probably don't realize totally. that even just those 10 minutes are actually so stimulating for your body, for your metabolism, that you just keep growing on that. And then I think once you build, like you said, you build those habits and you don't lose those habits, you start to be able to, you know, carve more time out in your schedule and say, okay, now I'm going to go to 20 minutes whatever it is, and you keep building up until you can get that amount of time that you feel is right for you. You know, there's a big part in addition to the muscle growth, the nutrition aspect of it. So for women in their 40s, what do you recommend? How I think we're all confused about how much protein are we supposed to have? And how do we actually even get that much protein? I think that's a big struggle that yeah. I have is getting uh, the right amount. Oh, this is amount. so common. It is sticky for a lot of women because I think it goes back to a lot of media around different styles of eating. And if you look at the, you know, the FDA recommendations for protein, it's actually quite low. It's very low. It's sort of like, this is the minimal amount you need for survival, not for thriving. I, 
mentioned this recently. I actually teach a nutrition course online and I, I mentioned this last night. In fact, I had um, a new cohort and I said, you know, I think it, it takes a little bit to shift your mode of thinking to what you, what you've always believed into something new, but it doesn't mean just because it's new, doesn't mean it's not a possibility. So the general rule of thumb that I give that I think is a conservative way to think about it. I always am careful to say goal when I use the words goal weight. I'm not saying what you weighed when you were 16. I'm saying what a reasonable healthy weight range for you as a 40 something year old woman is to take about 0 0.75, 0 0.8 of that and let that be your target protein. So what would that look like for a woman who is, let's say, you know, 5'8 and 150 pounds is a, like a comfortable weight for her to be at. Maybe she would be striving for 120 grams of protein a day. And that's where I think if you are a female who's never really thought about that before, you might be like, holy yes. cow, how do I do that? Yes. So my best piece of advice is to, first of all, metabolically speaking, as far as balancing your blood sugar and, and as best as you can optimize your hormones is eating, eating can, on consistent intervals. So whether that's three big meals a day, four medium meals a day, five smaller meals a day is really a personal choice. Some people do, you know, it takes a little bit of experimenting, but I would say, let, I'll stick, speak in hypotheticals. Let's say I have that woman who wants to try to get 120 grams of protein a day. And she's like, I'm going to have four, I'm going to eat four times a day. And at each of those four times, I'm going to aim to get 30 grams of protein. Does it have to be animal protein? You know, this is sticky because, and I, <laughs> I was a vegetarian for many years. I think that we sometimes tend to think in all or nothings, like meaning like, does it have to be all animal protein? I'm like, I am not, I'm not anti plant-based eating. I, it's just very difficult to get the quality and the level of protein that you need when you're not. And you have to be, you have to be more discerning. So an example of somebody, not necessarily vegan, but let's say vegetarian, you know, you, you're, you're limited with your protein sources and with a lot of those protein sources from like nuts, seeds, beans, you're also getting a high level of carbohydrates and fats depending. And so that can really knock you off kilter too, out of balance as far as like your daily caloric intake in the, under the guise of eating healthy and getting off protein. Next thing you know, your, you know, your carbs are off the charts. So I do think lean, lean animal-based proteins simplify it, but there's no reason why you can't do a little of both. I, I often say like, it's okay. You could absolutely still have a plant forward diet that still includes animal protein. Is it because of the amino acids that are in the animal based proteins compared to plant based that help yeah, them in with muscle Inherently mass? in an animal based protein, you have a full amino acids profile when it comes to veg veg uh, vegetarian or plant based diets you don't. So mm -hmm. you have limitations. So this is where I don't know if anybody remembers, they used to say like, if you're going to, if you want a complete protein, you would combine certain points. Mm -hmm. And there is some level of truth to that. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the same meal. It just want you want to do it throughout the day because you want to make sure that you're checking the box on all those different amino acids, which by the way, you need for muscle development. Some people, some clients I have worked with that that really want to be vegetarian and work with, ha I have worked, it's not my preference because it is a little bit more tricky. So they'll often supplement with amino acids, which is makes life simpler for them, right? But I, do, I, am a, I have kind of changed my tune on this over the years. I really do think that getting most of your nutrition from foods first is the way to go rather than relying on supplements. And what about for 
protein specifically, you know, especially I think mom's breakfast is probably our hardest meal because we're on the go getting the kids to school and most people just grab a bar or how do you feel about protein (laughs) shakes? You see my face. I'm like, I know. (laughs) (laughs) So it comes down to me. It comes down to like, we want to know what the quick thing is. And so I say, let's reverse engineer that. What could make your life go a little easier in the morning so that you don't have to reach for the bar? Right. Is it boiling like? eggs the night before or just could warming be. up yeah, some I sausage? Mean, could be, yeah, things like baked oatmeal, overnight oats with like a protein powder mixed in, like a Greek yogurt parfait that you just make that, you know, when you've made dinner, make your breakfast for the next morning. Mm-hmm. I often, this brings, this is something that comes up in conversation with my clients a lot and, and your moms right now. And I, I, I will often say like, I want you to imagine, you know, what moms do is they grab the bar right? They're the last to think about what they're going to eat. But you would never send your kid to school with an after school sport (laughs) with a bar. Some do. A lot do. (laughs) I don't know. I think a lot do. It's okay. It's okay to take care of yourself. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, And necessary. And we think, oh, well, I'll just, you know, I'll just, I'll figure it out later. We Mm -hmm. leave it to chance. And you know, and then we wonder why we feel crappy in the afternoon, why we want to reach for the cookie or the sugar or the Starbucks, right? There's a reason for that. It starts, and I'm really, as someone who never ate breakfast, now I'm like, I always will have breakfast. It's not first thing when I get up in the morning, but it is my first, you know, meal of the day is absolutely going to have 30 to 35 grams of protein. So I set myself up, and it, it's I, I am, you know, happy to report that it's like the single best thing you could probably do for your health and your your blood sugar throughout the day, your energy, your mental clarity, and, and also to save off those cravings later in the day. How do you monitor progress? So for instance, it used to be when I was younger, it was always the, the scale, right? We're always looking at the number on the scale. And of yeah. course, that's not the answer. That's not the whole picture. With your clients, how do you monitor their progress? Or how do you suggest they monitor their own? I think that's such a personal, personal thing. I would say when it comes to the scale, I often will tell clients, I'm like, I understand that, that is there's that little dopamine hit of seeing the number go in the direction that you want to, but it doesn't tell you the full picture. You could just clean up your eating and go a little low carb for a few days and watch the scale go down, but it's most likely water weight, not mm-hmm. body fat. And that if you do go um, super low calorie for a couple of weeks, yes, you will probably feel the scale number go down, but you'll also be losing muscle along with it. So that's a slippery slope, right? So for me, for me, it depends on the client that I'm talking to. And it's, it's a, it's an open conversation because I have clients who are very triggered by that number. And if it doesn't go in the way that they want, I like, if you know that about yourself, that is not going to be a great way to track your, your definition of progress. I really prefer to now encourage my clients to focus on the, the, what we call the non-scale victories. Like how's your energy? How's your sleep? Like, I think a lot of women don't realize that your sleep is oftentimes crappy because of your inability to manage stress during the day and the way that you're eating. I'm working with one client right now who, when she came to me, she was only sleeping four or five hours a night and we just shifted around and get her actually eating more. It's like now she's sleeping eight hours a night. Something so simple, but that's going to have a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. So to me, the measurement of progress is not the measure on the scale unless, unless it's a longer duration so that you're seeing it as a data point, as a trend. And along followed with that is improved energy, improved stamina, improved mental clarity, your clothes fitting better, because that's going to be an indication that your metabolism is actually in a healthy place and that your, your 
losing fat, not muscle, right? Which is key. Yes, because I think anything a, that a, gives me more sleep. I love sleep. Yeah, <laughs> I know. And it's and and we don't. I don't think people necessarily want to believe that there's a correlation, but there absolutely is. Absolutely is. I also find a lot of women tend to undereat. I think that's a big issue. And I like that you're saying, you know, not to focus so much on the scale, but actually to more nourish yourself. And the more you actually nourish yourself leads to, you know, the trigger effect of the better sleep, the more energy. Because I was just talking about this with my sister this morning. When you actually take care of yourself first, which it's a challenge and it's a struggle to do so. But when you bake in that time, I say try on a Sunday night, you know, trying to like map out your week, whatever it is, that you're so, you have so much more energy for your family and you just feel so much better. Like your brain kind of like turns on. And that yeah. you kind of like can't quantify what that is, right? It's just like, there's no like magic number for that. That's so much more important than what like a number on the scale says. Because if you're just grinding it out and sweating to lose that water weight, you know, you're sort of like in this yo-yo phase. And I think in your 40s, you really can't afford to be in that phase because you're really going to start like driving yourself into the ground. No. And I think the other piece of this is that when you get hyper-focused on that number on the scale, that in and of itself is a stressor. Yeah. Right. right? It's that constant. I, I, I equate it to like a radio that's out of, you know, an old fashioned radio that's like in between stations. It's that constant noise and buzz that is, can be for some women a little obsessive, right? It's all about the scale. It's like that stress is actually keeping you further from that goal that you want to get to. Whereas if you you know, we toss around the self-care thing, but that's ultimately, Amber, what you're talking about is like, we need to mother ourselves because no one else is going to do it for you. Your kids aren't going to do it for you. Husbands as great as they are, don't have that wherewithal to be like, <laughs> oh, honey. Yeah, they have <laughs> no idea. <laughs> no shade to the, to the gentlemen in everybody's lives, but that's just not how men are wired. You know, that's not, that's not how they roll. So we have to, we really are, are the ones that have to stop and do it for ourselves. I really relate to that. I mean, I, I suffered from an eating disorder as a teenager. And mm -hmm. since then, I really don't get on the scale very often. And I, mm -hmm. like you said, I, I measure my health and well-being by the factors that you indicated. How is my energy level? How are my, you know, how am I feeling? There's a little bit of, are my clothes still fitting? The logistics <laughs> totally. are But the reality is that the number doesn't matter to me anymore. And if I do get back into that pattern, it stresses me out. Right. And so it's like, why why bother? Yeah. Me <laughs> too. I can't yeah. weigh myself because I don't even want to know. Like I judge from like how I feel because I don't, the number doesn't yeah. mean anything. And, and is it true the more when you weight train that you will actually gain weight because muscle weighs more than fat? Muscle for this pound per pound takes up less space than fat. So right, it like takes up less space, but it might weigh more. Just, so it's yeah, it's semantic. It doesn't actually weigh more. It's just more more dense. So it takes up less area. So you could you could look at somebody who is let me just take the 150 pound analogy. Who is 150 pounds and is very defined and has a lot of muscle and is like maybe a size six. And you could see also another woman same weight who has more body fat and is a size 12. Right. So that's their weight is the same, but their body, this is where the body composition conversation comes into play. If you are using the scale weight as a measurement tool and also embarking on a new fitness program, do not expect, you know, that number on the scale to dictate your in real time results because fat loss in and of itself and muscle gain is not linear. It's just not. So I, it's not back to what Dina was saying, it's not my preferred way of somebody tracking progress, but I also, you know, and I know that women fall on a spectrum with how tricky it is for them. Some are very 
neutral about that. Like, oh, it's just a point of data, no big deal. And others are very, very, like that's the thing that derails them. So I am more about, um, as a trainer and a, and a health coach and a nutrition coach, like it's not weight loss at all costs, it's health first. And you know, it's funny because when you focus on that, your weight generally will come into a healthy place, right? So, but back to the, you know, the muscle fat ratio, what a lot of women don't realize is that the more you work out, the more inflammation you cause in your body, which can cause that scale to go up. Your body might not look all that much different, but you might be holding on to a little bit more water. And so the scale isn't really the best dictation of where your composition is at. And that's the thing that we want to be, you know, I would say more concerned with when it comes to when it comes to that. One thing we haven't touched on yet, which I think is super important also, at least I know it has been in my life, is injury prevention. I, oh, tore yeah. my, I tore my ACL about five years ago. And ever since then, I'm like, and you actually, we did touch on it a little bit because you talked about women who are afraid when they're coming into exercising. And a lot, a lot of my fear around exercise has been, I don't want to hurt myself again. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. how, you know, how do you work on mobility right. <laughs> and mobility at uh, this age? Yeah. You know, it's, it's, well, it's ironic as I actually just had ACL surgery about seven weeks ago, <laughs> ACL <laughs> and meniscus. So you can't Welcome prevent to my injury. world. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this is my, I had my first one when I was 31. Most of the time, as far as strength training, so few injuries happen with that because that's a more, you have to be mindful or you ought to be mindful when you're doing it. You want to think about your form and all that. I think for most people, the injuries happen when they're in some unpredictable scenario like a sport, but exercise in and of itself, I think, you know, in injuries, I see them as a trainer more inherent with overuse. So with my runners who are running a lot, like just doing a lot, a lot of miles without appropriate recover and rehab practices as far as like mobility and flexibility and things like that. I tend to look at it through a different lens now that I work you know, my, my, my population is now skewing a little bit, you know, into fifties, but in the forties is where I think you really start to see it. That's where I started to see it in my body after being a lifelong runner, like, okay, this just is not serving me anymore. So I do think strength training in and of itself is a lot friendlier and it, it is a great thing to bolster your injury prevention as you get older. So things are going to happen. You're going to trip you're going to fall. Like in my case, I tore my ACL at the vet's office. Oh my God. I was, I, I had my <laughs> 75 pound dog in one hand and I was reaching wow. for somebody else's dog who was starting to run so quick. You know, I, there was no way I could have prevented that. It's such a freak thing. But on the plus side, how I choose to look at it's like, but I have good strength, good mobility, good balance, good flexibility that has helped the recovery process. Right go that much better. Absolutely. Right? And if I didn't have that, I could have st still torn my ACL. But if I didn't have the fitness level I had, the recovery would have been way worse. The preparation beforehand, being in good shape, really helps you with injury recovery. I absolutely. I absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think that's hard to, it's hard to tell that to somebody who is has a fear of exercise. But I, I would bring it back to what we were saying before, if you're new to strength training, Start with body weight stuff so that you feel comfortable with the movements that you're doing before you try to push beyond what you are. Your body is ready to handle because it does need some time to adapt to the stimulus that you're providing. And then, you know, and then you you proceed with cautious optimism and see like what you what your body's capable of. I think we are we are a lot stronger than we ever give ourselves credit for. Yeah, that too. We have actually from some listeners wrote in, we have a couple rapid fire questions for you that I wanted to cover oh, before we close out. 
What are your thoughts regarding intermittent fasting? Because I think this is a tough one for women, especially at this age. (laughs) Yeah, I love this one, actually, because now like every couple of years, something new comes on the scene as far as the nutrition world, right? And let's just say also that nutrition is ever evolving. There are always studies being done. What we know about intermittent fasting is there there are some benefits to it for circadian rhythm around circadian rhythm, also around insulin resistance and things like that. But as far as hard, fast, definitive data that makes it, that says it's better than calorie restricted eating for weight loss, it's just not there. What What they do find, and this is interesting to me, and it makes so much sense for me from a psychology perspective, they find that people are more apt to be adherent when they are just following a clock. So for instance, if you said, I'm going to intermittent fast and I eat from, I only eat from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. at 16, you know, 16, eight fast in their mind, like, okay, it's easier for me to think that I don't eat it until 10 and then the kitchen's closed at six. My argument with it as a fitness, as a professional fitness and wellness nutrition professional is, are you eating enough during those eating windows? Because if you're not, then it really is irrelevant. You're not really, you're just, you're just putting a timestamp on it. So that's not an either good or bad. One method that I think is very reasonable is to say, stop eating three hours before you go to bed. Kitchen closed. Let your body have a digestive rest. When it's time for sleep, your body's sleeping. It's not digesting food. And let's say if you do that and then you eat, you know, and you sleep seven, eight hours and then you wake up and you wait an hour before you eat, you're already building in like a, like a buffer about 12 hours. So is it does that fall under the intermittent fasting category not necessarily because it's not as extreme i will also say that intermittent fasting for some women especially in perimenopause if you're still menstruating can actually be more do more harm than good because your body perceives it as a stressor right. in particular if you're not eating enough during that eating window so i know it's a go to for many because again it feels like oh if that's this is easy all i have to do is eat between x and y we're missing um, some of the larger larger issues I think that are at play. So if you have any issues issues around blood sugar regulation as well, it can be really tricky. So it's definitely, I will just leave it at this. It is not a first stop when I work with a new client to say, oh, let's start with intermittent fasting. I'm like, no, no, no. We want to make sure that you actually are eating at regular intervals. And then if we want to put on a higher level and see and just experiment, see what happens, let's do it. But I want to know that a client is like not dealing with disordered eating or things like that, because I do think for many women, I have seen that really Mm -hmm. play out. It's hard when you also compare yourself to your husband, if mine happens to not do that, but I know many people's husbands can intermittent fast and they get amazing results and it's so unfair, but they just have such different body compositions than women that we actually have to honor, you know, our cycles and also, I think if you're going to intermittent fast to maybe fast, that's along exactly your what I was going to say. Like, well, men aren't the men aren't the one bearing the babies. Like, and that too. You know, we think about the hormonal complexities of being female. Like, our whole, not to say our whole purpose on the earth. That's so. Don't misunderstand. But I'm saying our per our are biologically driven to bear children. That is what you know, part of the creative design of what we what we are, right? So whether we choose to have them or not, but that's what our hormones are doing. Mm-hmm. So when we do things that our body perceives as a threat, i.e. not eating, You're your spiking. hormones are going to be affected by that and not necessarily, you know, advantageously, right? So I think that's the one piece that we that we oftentimes miss on our our goal to weight less. So we can't we can't comp- definitely can't compare ourselves to the men because we're not small men. 
Right, exactly. And do you have any sort of go-to supplements that you recommend for your clients at this stage in life? I I don't have go-to supplements because everybody is unique. I like that answer. So anytime I'm in a like a public forum like that, I say, you know, I, I really am hesitant. So people will ask me like what I take. I'm like, listen, I, I think that's not relevant necessarily to the conversation, but I will say this. Eating it, you know, eating a plant forward diet with making sure that you're getting four or five servings of fruit and vegetables per day, you are checking the box on a lot of the nutrients that you need and you're eating really high quality food in your other sources. So whatever that looks like to you, starchy vegetables, whole grains, lean meats, those kinds of things, right? You're checking the box on so many nutritional requirements. Then if you say, okay, so there's something beyond that that I need. So like vitamin D, if we live in, we, I live in the Northeast, I don't get a lot of sun in the year, vitamin D, I would say, okay, we're pretty safe for saying, okay, that's a supplement that, that people might want to take in the winter. Something like magnesium, for women who, uh, you know, I, it can definitely help you to get a restful sleep at night. It can help with constipation issues. So I say those because they're pretty safe, if you will, and they're places where people are tend to be deficient, and then also zinc. Yeah. So that's not prescriptive by any means. Another question I just would dovetail off of that is probiotics. Um, not always necessary, but can be helpful. Can be helpful in in part of a larger picture, right? It's not not the probiotic itself that's going to change everything, right? But it's the probiotic in the context of a whole foods balanced diet. Great. And then one last question before we go. So I don't know. Have you ever had clients? We have you know many people that they just want the quick fix. So they say, oh, I'm just going to get a tummy tuck, or I'm just going to get lipo. Have you seen any you know results like post surgery? that they need to, like, that's not really the answer. Like you still, in addition to that, that's fine. Have your surgery, but that you need the strength training in order to keep whatever those results are intact. I think it's really just comes down to having realistic expectations. I mean, if we're having the, the plastic surgery conversation about that, like liposuction, tummy tucks or whatever, like if your body has really taken a hit from childbirth and there are things that cannot be fixed through exercise, and that makes you, that helps you to feel more confident, then I don't personally have any issue with that. I know plenty of women who have had breast augmentations, breast lifts, tummy tucks, you know, all the things. But when they're in my world, they are also doing the lifestyle pieces, right? They're also eating well, moving and exercising. So it, it's hard for me to say what happens when you just go to the, you know, the plastic surgery route, because again, I tend to look at the fitness and nutrition piece as a health first. And when you're doing that, the aesthetics kind of come, right. but to be fair, like if you've delivered twins, the skin in your stomach is probably right. not going to look the same and you might, you know, you might desire to change that. So, right. but you're going to look better overall if you're taking care of your body. Right. On top of that. Jen, Jen, thank you so much. I mean, this has hey, been so informative. And also I find it really inspiring. Part of the purpose of this the purpose of this podcast is to help empower women. And I feel like that's really this information, having the tools and knowing that no matter what age you are, your health is in your hands and you can always make changes is Absolutely. such an amazing thing. And we really appreciate you sharing your expertise with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a fun, fun conversation. I hope it gives give some food for thought around uh, some of these things that we talked about for sure. Subscribe to The Well Drop on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcast. 
Share with a friend who can benefit from listening too. Follow us on social media at The Well Drop. The Well Drop podcast and content posted by Amber Berger and Dina Wismer is presented solely for general informational, educational, and entertainment purposes. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast or website is at the user's own risk. It is not intended as a substitute for the advice of a physician, professional coach, psychotherapist, or other qualified professional, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical or mental health condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered health advice. The WellDrop is not responsible for any losses, damages, or liabilities that may arise from the use of this podcast.